Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Loving Liberty program today. I'm Brian Hyde. If you want to join in the conversation, you can do so. 801-331-8113. Oh, there's a lot going on here. I'm going to start off with a, a little uh, story here that just illustrates, uh, again, the, the slipping of our sanity. And this story is out of uh, Kansas City. A 12-year-old girl has been arrested and now faces a felony charge. Actually, felony charges after she made a gun with her fingers. That's according to the Kansas City Star. Now, according to a source familiar with the incident, a classmate asked the girl, hey, if you could kill five people in the class, who would they be? And she responded by making a gun shape with her fingers and then pointing it at four classmates, them, 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 and then pointed it at herself and pretended to shoot herself. The girl was taken to the principal's office because of the incident, and that's where a school resource officer recommended she be arrested, and they hauled her away in handcuffs. Now, court documents in the case state the girl, quote, unlawfully and feloniously communicated a threat to commit violence with intent to place another in fear or with the intent to cause the evacuation, lockdown, or disruption in regular ongoing activities. Oh, my word. Where do you even begin? I mean, look, it would be one thing if, like we have seen happen occasionally, a kid is found to be making a list or maybe the parents are like, hey, why are you suddenly so interested in um, all of this bomb making stuff? Why are you looking up stuff like this? Why are you purchasing materials that might be construed to be made for that? Why are you trying to get your hands on a gun or ammunition? Or why did we find this in your backpack? In other words, something tangible that shows they're actually planning something. But to sit there and say, well, the girl unlawfully and feloniously communicated a threat to commit violence. Was it really a threat? I'll grant you, some people are not going to be very happy about, hey, if you were going to wipe out five people in this class, who would they be? Um, I would pick her and him and him and her and then myself. I think you'd have to have a pretty fevered imagination. I mean, like, you should be on medication type imagination. To say that, oh, yeah, that was that was a threat to commit violence or with the intent to place another in fear or with the intent to cause the evacuation, lockdown or disruption in regular ongoing activities. Guess what? I don't know how they're going to prove that was her intent, even though that was their chosen reaction. Oh, my goodness. We should lock this place down. We should evacuate it. We should disrupt everything. That's the official overreaction that has kind of become the norm. But they're going to lay it all on her. Well, you know, we had to arrest her. She was detained by police, released to her mother. Keep in mind, we're talking about a 12-year-old girl. This is not some 18-year-old boy with a history of run-ins with the law and uh, maybe on some kind of, uh, you know, mood elevator medication who had been making threats to his classmates. 
John Cavanaugh, the girl's grandfather, told the Kansas City Star, I think this is something that probably could have been handled in the principal's office and got completely out of hand. She was just mouthing off. He says, I'm really worried about my granddaughter's future. And I think rightfully so. I think he should be worried. I mean, look, if I'm missing something here, help me see what I'm not seeing here. Brian, we just we can't afford to take anything like this less than an actual threat. I don't agree. I think kids, particularly 12 year olds, are not known for their um, well-reasoned and well-thought-out, non-emotional, you know, and rational summing up of the world and what needs to be done. And particularly if someone else was asking her the question, as opposed to her just out of the blue saying, hey, you know what? If I could kill five people in this room, here's what I would do. Do you suppose something like this might uh, have some impact, follow her around for a little while? I mean, granted, she's a juvenile, so maybe it'll be expunged from her records or maybe it's something that that won't uh, show up. Down the road, you know, if she behaves herself and after age 18, I'm not altogether sure how those laws work. But being arrested, being charged with this kind of a felony or these types of felonies. That's a pretty good recipe for a person to end up washing dishes and taking other people's trash out for the rest of their life. And I don't believe that the way that the the school reacted or the, the fact that uh, someone signed off on the idea of, yeah, we need to prosecute her for this. I don't think that that reflects anything resembling justice. I don't think it, it, it begins to, to be justified by what she actually did. The actual measurable harm done by her pointing her finger, shaped like a gun, at four different students and then at herself. Now, the girl's grandfather says, hey, she had no access to any guns. She has no real intent on hurting anyone. But this 12-year-old could face a year in a juvenile detention center, or as I like to call them, a uh, college for the criminally inclined, because they'll teach her how to be a real criminal there. The other kids will definitely show her the ropes if she's convicted. Now, predictably, school spokesperson David Smith stood by the decision saying, I might not have anything in my hand. But I might be so clear that the individual definitely feels threatened. Oh, boy. So the girl's due in court tomorrow. I just, I'm still trying to get my mind around the idea that people feel like this kind of overreaction is not only good, but but necessary. It takes me back to the story from a couple of years back where uh, a child's father showed up for a meeting with his, uh, his child's teacher. Now, this was at a private school. And apparently there's a policy. You check in with the office before, you know, you go back to the classroom. I think that's pretty constant in, in even public schools as well. You know, visitors need to check in at the office. They want to know who's on campus. So this father checked in and while waiting for an aide to bring the teacher to him to meet, The father wandered down the hall a little bit because it was taking a while and was looking at some of the artwork on the walls. Well, the aide returned, didn't see the guy, 
and hit the panic button. There's a stranger on campus. Oh, oh, the school went into lockdown, and, and it was and there might be there might be an armed stranger. So they locked everybody down. The SWAT team was sent out, ambulances staging, you know, nearby, and it became this big full blown incident. And for the next couple of hours, all the students and all the teachers remained locked in their classrooms as. Room by room, the SWAT team methodically went through and cleared the school. Now, in the meantime, the dad had actually met with the teacher and gone on home. No idea that there was any of this panic following his having broken eye contact with the school aide. But the worst part about that was for all the pants wetting and all of the, oh, you know, the the hyperventilating over, there's a stranger on campus. People were clapping each other on the back. Oh, this this went very well. Thank you, police. Thank you for keeping us safe. As they swept through every classroom, pointing guns in all directions. Yes, yes, thank you for keeping us. Thank you for helping us overreact to nothing. I mean, I don't know what that says about the psyche of the American people, that, that people would actually celebrate that. Yes, well done. Well done. It, it, it went just as, as we hoped it would. But it sounds to me like we've, we've got more than just a few screws loose. What is that training the kids? Maybe I'll touch on this when we come back. There's, there's a movement right now to put a halt to the active shooter drills that are taking place in a number of different schools. Because police are coming in, running these drills, they're shooting blanks, they're terrorizing kids, guns being pointed in people's face. Remember, it's the cops who are doing this. What if there was a darker purpose behind this? What if it was to condition people and to help build support for gun control by instilling so much fear in them and traumatizing people, again, at the hands of the state and its agents. The people would say, I would feel safer if, if we knew that, you know, guns were, were impossible to get your hands on or, or tougher to get your hands on. I think we'll, we'll, we'll do that. We'll take a quick break here. We'll come back. Let's talk about our uh, school shooting drills, the active shooter drills. Are they intended to stampede the herd in a predictable direction? I think we can make the case. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. All right, I've cracked open the uh, the can of worms here, and now I'm going to make the most of it. Let's talk about school shootings and active shooter drills and uh, whether or not they are being used to terrorize the public into supporting gun control. This is an article from Big League Politics. It's by Shane Trejo. 
and he talks about how in lieu of the media-generated threat over mass shootings, public schools throughout the country are regularly conducting active shooter drills, with some of these drills featuring simulated gunfire to further terrorize children. One such drill happened recently in Dayton, Ohio, the site of a mass shooting in August by an Antifa-linked killer, which resulted in 10 deaths. This is what the Daily News, the Dayton Daily News, reported about that drill which took place on October 1st. It said school resource officer Amanda Meyer said the students will meet in their homerooms and be taken to the auditorium for a presentation about the drill they're about to experience. She says teachers in the building went through a similar drill two weeks ago. Meyer says after the presentation, the students will return to their classrooms and await the start of the scripted drill. She said teachers will have the option to say where the shots were coming from or not during the drill. During each set of shots, the students and teachers will talk about it and a possible plan of action, whether to barricade their classroom or evacuate. Outside of the building, staff members will be wearing safety vests to assist and direct students to predetermined safe zones. In addition, there will be school buses circulating in the adjacent neighborhood, which will also be safe zones. The safety staff members will have a list of safety steps relating to medical treatment, cover and concealment, and bus locations. Following the drill, the students will return to their home rooms as well as back to the auditorium for a one-hour debriefing. After lunch, students will have discussions with teachers and participate in social-emotional activities. Hmm. Now, Shane Trejo says other drills featuring simulated gunfire have occurred without any prior notice, and they were done to send the message to children that they are never safe. Lake Brantley High School in Altamonte Springs, Florida, issued a code red lockdown December 8th of last year. A voice broadcast over the PA system. This is not a drill as teachers were sent text messages telling them an active shooter was on the premises. Well, you can guess what happened. It sent the entire school into hysteria for what turned out to be a cruel hoax perpetrated by the county sheriff's office. 17-year-old Miriam Elshire said it took a lot of people a lot of time to process what was happening. She told the Orlando Sentinel, in my head, I was like, oh, my God, I could have died today. 16-year-old Sabrina Bonadito, Bonadio rather, said my first reaction was anger. After the drill took place, she said no one talked about the emotional impact, which I feel is more longer lasting. I feel like administrators never really recognized that people had panic attacks. Now, Shane Trejo says experts have indicated there is no evidence showing that these active shooter drills increase public safety at all. They're routinely compared to the laughable and futile duck and cover drills that kids were made to do in the 1950s in case of a nuclear holocaust. James Allen Fox, a Northeastern University criminologist, said to NPR, there is no evidence that that prepares people any better than just instructing them verbally or in writing. He says when the Parkland shooting happened, a lot of teachers weren't sure whether it was a real event or whether this was a drill, which they'd been having unannounced. There was a heightened risk to develop more anxiety, more fear as a result of being what is in what is in some cases a rather frightening simulation. That's according to University of Central Florida psychologist Deborah Beadle. When speaking about the impact that these drills have on children, and that's the entire point of these exercises, it may very well be why they hold them in the first place. 
the active shooter drills have become a popular talking point among special interests and left-wing politicians seeking to eviscerate the Second Amendment of the Constitution. An anti-gun, anti-gun group, rather, Sandy Hook Promise, released a disgustingly manipulative propaganda video last month, which was echoed by Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke on Twitter. O'Rourke said, when kids go back to school, they have plenty to worry about. They shouldn't also have to wonder if they're going to make it home. We need to buy back all of these assault weapons. Yeah, except you didn't own them in the first place, so you wouldn't be buying them back from anybody. Congresswoman Angie Craig of Minnesota said the idea that we're sending our kids back to school to enact shooter drills, that shouldn't be in America. Representative Mickey Sherrill from New Jersey and Jason Crow from Colorado wrote in a US to USA Today op-ed, We've never fought for anyone's right to turn a high school, hallway, synagogue, concert, church, or Walmart into a battlefield. There's a lot we hope our children learn at school, but active shooter drills shouldn't be in the curriculum. A recent survey conducted by Central Square has shown that the, that the propaganda is working on the youth. As millennials and Generation Z say they're twice as concerned about mass shootings as their baby boomer counterparts. Here's what Central Square wrote in their press release about their survey. Quote, the younger generation who grew up with active shooter drills in school expressed more concern for shooting incidents. 46% of Generation Z born between 1997 and 2001 and 39% of millennials born between 1981 and 1996 said they were either worried or very worried about active shooters compared to only 22% of baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964. Active shooter drills are training precocious young people to be scared of guns at all times in order to prime the pump for firearm confiscation that extreme left-wing Democrats have been salivating about for decades. Now, I don't know if that strikes you as well. Now, that's just hyperbole that they would, you know, portray it as such. But as I look at this, and especially as I think about it, if I wanted to condition uh, an entire generation of young people to have fear that I could die at any moment because some mad gunman might come in and shoot me, and then I reinforce that by enacting it with police officers acting out the parts. I don't know. That seems like a pretty good way to condition them, at least get that fear into them. I mean, for crying out loud, look, there's nothing wrong with being trained how to exit the classroom in an orderly fashion. Wasn't that the point of the fire drills we had as kids? You know, the crazy thing about it is, uh, at least in my grade school in Salt Lake, the, the fire drill alarm Everywhere else I went to school, it was just a bell. It was just a bell that would ring continuously. Just one continuous ring, and that was your signal. Hey, the fire alarm's going off. We need to line up and get out. But the one at my grade school was more like this uh, just loud horn that, that would go off. It was, I mean, it hurt your ears. And it was scary sounding. And I remember you'd be sitting there in class, you know, hopefully paying attention. I was a pretty good kid after all. And suddenly this alarm would go off and it was just, you know, your heart rate jumped by about 20% in a heartbeat from that sound. But we were orderly and we lined up and we went out. 
But this idea of, oh, well, you know, do we shelter in place? Do we do this? Do we do, do that? <sighs> I've heard people make the comparison. I've made it myself from time to time. Our schools are more closely resembling prisons than they are institutions of learning. And part of that is our kids are being taught that they will be growing up under the watchful eye of armed supervision. Now, look, we had a truant officer who would go around and enforce the truancy laws. He was actually a really nice guy. In fact, we called him Sensei Tid. He was a karate instructor. He's an older guy. I don't think he carried a weapon. At our high school, we did have a, a resource officer. He was Detective Richie. Very low profile, though. Plain clothes, you know, he carried a gun, but it was never, it, there was never this ostentatious display of, you know, of force. Not today's kids. I don't think things have changed that much. Why did we have to go this way? Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. All right, I put a cool washcloth on my head. I believe I have calmed down a little bit here, but I'm really troubled by what I see happening with uh, with these uh, shooter drills and 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 other ways that, that our schools are are becoming little uh, little education camps, armed education camps. And I say this with the understanding. I have to I have to throw this disclaimer out there. My wife is a public school teacher. She has to she has to put up with a lot of this garbage as well. And uh, and you know, she does her best to work within the system, but there's times when I even see her roll her eyes. I totally understand and I absolutely have no disagreement with those people who would pull their kids out of school. And say, we'll, we'll find another way. Whether we homeschool them, whether we private school them, whether we unschool them. I'm not going to subject my child to this uh, anti-gun and other anti-normal you know, normal hysteria. But there's precious few parents that, uh, that can do this. Some of them, it's a matter of, hey, we both got to work. We need that uh, government-sponsored daycare. I'm sorry, but that's what it is for a lot of folks. If that if that stings, it's not because I think you're a bad person. I'm just saying for a lot of parents, that's kind of the de facto. Well, you know, we got to somebody's got to watch the kid. So that's where they go. What a shame. There was another story here. And, and I, I know there are some people who will say, Brian, don't even talk about this. But it's a it's a very serious story. And I'm, I'm sharing this with you in the in the uh, hopes that uh, someone who hears this will not go running to the government saying, hey, you need to change your rules, but instead will say, really? So that's, uh, that's a way of obtaining a firearm that I had not yet anticipated. I'm not doing this to, to give any advantage to criminals, but I'm trying to give uh, some advice to anybody who wants to be a responsible gun owner that there are ways you can own a gun without having to jump through the government loopholes and get the background check and register yourself or register your firearm with the government. This is from Dan Zimmerman at thetruthaboutguns.com. The ATF's definition of an AR-15 lower as a firearm is in serious trouble. 
And he says, first, credit where credit's due. CNN's Scott Glover has managed to turn out an excellent article about a fairly arcane aspect of guns and firearms law while getting the details right. And that's a notable feat for legacy media these days. But with that out of the way, aborted though it was, what Glover has written about is worthy of note, and it could make the ATF's job of regulating AR-15 sales going forward extremely difficult. The title on CNN is titled, or the article on CNN is titled, He Sold Illegal AR-15s. Feds Agreed to Let Him Go Free to Avoid Hurting Gun Control Efforts. So here are the particulars. A Southern California man named Joseph Rowe produced 80% AR-15 lowers and complete rifles, some of which he allegedly sold without a manufacturer's license and some allegedly to prohibited persons. That would mean ATF agents posing as a buyer. At least a few of the guns he sold were used in crimes, including an 80% lower that was used as the basis for a rifle build used in a 2013 shooting spree in Santa Monica. Now, the ATF had been watching Roe for years, and they mounted a sting operation against him in 2014, sending undercover agents into his South L.A. machine shop where he was holding build parties where customers finished lowers and assembled completed rifles. Eventually, he was arrested and charged with running an unlicensed firearms manufacturing operation. But none of that is the interesting part of the story. The aspect that's worthy of your attention and that's no doubt giving the ATF nightmares is the argument that Rose's attorney made in successfully defending his client. So for those who don't know, the only part of an AR-15 that's legally considered a firearm is the lower receiver. That's the part that has a serial number. That's the part that requires a background check to purchase unless you buy an 80% lower, meaning it's only 80% finished, and then you finish it yourself. But that's another story. Now, Joseph Rowe was smart enough to hire a good attorney by the name of Gregory Nicolason. Nicolason did his homework and actually read the federal statute that lays out what constitutes, legally speaking, a firearm. Nicolason argued that the definition of a receiver under the relevant federal code, code rather, differed in various ways from the AR-15 component Roe was accused of manufacturing. Under the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations, a firearm frame or receiver is defined as the part of a firearm which provides housing for the hammer, bolt, or breech lock, breech block rather, and firing mechanism, and which is usually threaded at its forward portion to receive the barrel. Now, the lower receiver in Rose's case does not have a bolt or breech block and is not threaded to receive the barrel. And neither does any other AR-15 lower receiver. So where most firearms have a monolithic receiver that meets the definition under federal law, an AR-15 has a split receiver, an upper and a lower. Neither component, strictly speaking, meets the definition of a frame or receiver that's explicitly laid out in the law. In effect, Nicolason argued that the ATF's interpretation of federal law that they've been using to deem AR-15 lowers as legal firearms is wrong and has been since, well, forever. Nicolason called the decision to classify it as a firearm nonetheless the result of secret, in-house decision-making. And Nicolason accused the ATF of abusing its authority by pursuing Roe based on his alleged violation of a policy that masquerades as law. 
Now, Roe's case was heard in a bench trial. That was his choice, by the way, in which only the judge hears the evidence and then renders a verdict. U.S. District Court Judge James V. Selma deliberated for a year and then wrote a tentative order in April. In his order, Selma agreed with Roe's argument that the ATF's definition of an AR-15 lower as a firearm is faulty. Now, that no doubt set off alarm bells from L.A. to D.C., If the ruling were allowed to stand, that would set a very inconvenient precedent, one that would make AR-15 lowers just like any other part of an AR-15 platform rifle, just another gun part that could be made and sold through the mail to just about anyone. No serial number, no background check needed. And the ATF couldn't let that stand, so prosecutors reached a plea deal with Roe. Selna did find that Roe was guilty of selling completed firearms without a license, subjecting him to a possible prison sentence. Following Selna's tentative order, the prosecution and defense agreed to a deal in which Roe would plead guilty to the charge against him, again, selling completed firearms without a license, but would be allowed to withdraw that plea if he stays out of trouble for a year. Prosecutors would then dismiss the case, and if Roe abides by the deal, he will have no criminal conviction and serve no time behind bars. Also, there would be no legal precedent. Sources familiar with the agreement said prosecutors wanted to strike a deal in order to prevent Selna's order from becoming permanent, drawing publicity, and creating case law that could hamper ATF enforcement efforts. So basically, they let Roe walk in order to preserve the current fiction under which the AR-50 or the ATF regulates AR-15 sales. As for drawing publicity, well, CNN, congratulations. You've done a good job of that with your story. And as Glover points out, Rose case wasn't the first time a similar argument has been successfully used. Federal law enforcement officials and members of Congress have been on notice about a potential problem with the language in federal gun law as applied to AR-15s at least since 2016. In July of that year, prosecutors in Northern California abandoned a case against a convicted felon named Alejandro Jimenez after a judge found the AR-15 lower receiver he was accused of purchasing in an ATF undercover sting did not meet the definition of a receiver under the law. That ruling and subsequent dismissal drew little notice, but it did prompt a letter to Congress from then U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch. She advised lawmakers that the judge's decision was not suitable for appeal and that if ATF officials believe the definition should be changed, they should pursue regulatory or administrative action. So that case was dropped, too. So the government has known the ATF is using a faulty interpretation of federal law to regulate the sale of AR-15 lowers for decades now. And the deal they cut in the Roe prosecution doesn't change that in the slightest. AR-15s, as we speak today, do not have a receiver by the definition of the existing law, and that's a huge issue, Nicolaysen said. It shows that the laws are obsolete, and they're out of sync with the realities of today's firearms market. Adam Winkler, the UCLA law professor, offered a similar assessment. When he was first informed of the judge's tentative order by a CNN reporter, Winkler said Selma's rationale appeared legally sound. It does seem like there is a problem, Winkler said. Well, it certainly does. And the only way to fix that is through new legislation. Congress alone can change federal law to define a frame or receiver in such a way that AR-15 rifles are covered. Apparently, Attorney General Lynch wrote the letter she did back in, in 2016, suggesting a legislative fix, but Congress has apparently shrugged that off. So... 
Would you like to get an AR-15 without having to jump through all the rigmarole of buying a serialized receiver and undergoing the background check and getting government permission? Get yourself an 80% receiver. And a friend who has a machine shop and can show you where to make the necessary drilling and, and milling. Problem solved. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Is it wrong that I am am rooting for the ATF to basically be <laughs> slapped down and and handcuffed by its own uh, its own uh, interpretation of its rules? I frankly, I think they're an unconstitutional agency to begin with in the first place. And I don't like that uh, there there's this push. We've got to get the AR-15s off the streets of our cities. You know, the vast majority of them are in the right hands. How? Because 99.99 something percent of them are silent at any given moment. Doesn't mean there's not gun violence. It just simply means that the people who are doing it are not the vast majority of gun owners. Therefore, they ought to be left alone to enjoy their lawfully owned private property. Shouldn't be subject to the whim of bureaucrats here and there. And that's exactly what this story I was just sharing with you points out. It's bureaucratic whim by which it seeks to regulate these things. I thought it was interesting, too. Mr. Rowe, the guy who was actually uh, selling these lowers, because he couldn't sell them, you had to or because you he couldn't uh, do it as a uh, he couldn't finish the receivers for someone as, as a customer merchant uh, transaction. He created a club and you'd pay a twenty five dollar fee to be a member of the club. And then you could do it yourself. He would set everything up on a CNC machine, you know, program in the necessary specifications for where the drilling or milling had to take place and then invite the member of the club to push a button, which would then set the machine in motion and actually carry out the operation. In other words, it wouldn't happen if they didn't push the button. So they are the ones who did it. Therefore, they manufactured their own receiver. Therefore, it was their rifle. And it did not need a government number or government permission to be in their possession. So on the one hand, I'm grateful that CNN has actually brought this to, to people's attention. I know I, I saw some people on a, on a particular gun discussion board saying, hey, you're giving all of our secrets away. The enemy's going to know exactly which loopholes to close the next time they, they want to pass some kind of a law. But see, it's a double-edged sword here, and it cuts both ways. The other thing is, there are a number of gun owners who now realize, I didn't know that I had that option. So if you know someone who has access to a CNC machine or has access to the blueprints for how to uh, create an AR-15 lower receiver or how to finish one, this is a way that they can do it without having to jump through the hoops and doing a type of registration with the government. And I'm not trying to be mean when I tell you, if that gives you heartburn, well, but we don't know who has it. You don't need to know. The only thing that you need to be concerned with is if someone uses a rifle or a shotgun or a handgun or their fists or their feet or a hammer or a club to harm another person, that person and that person alone needs to answer for it. 
not everybody else. It's none of your freaking business. But that busybody mentality has been, unfortunately, drilled into a lot of people's heads to where, well, I have a right to know. I want to know who has one of these things. It's none of your business. Leave people alone. Let them pursue happiness in their own way. Some people will want to own guns. Some people won't. As long as their behavior is peaceful, it's none of your business. And so I have to give this kind of begrudging thank you, CNN, for helping uh, gun owners who might not have known about this before or those who may have been facing charges related to such a thing know that uh, here's a workable defense. Make sure your attorney sees that. Seems to me that's actually kind of a helpful thing. Now, coming back to CNN, watching with some interest, um, if you're familiar with Project Veritas, or is it Veritas? I don't know. Veritas, 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 I believe, means truth in Latin. But uh, James O'Keefe, the guy who has blown the whistle on uh, Planned Parenthood, who has blown the whistle on Google, now is blowing the whistle on CNN, a CNN insider actually blowing the whistle on his own network. This is something you're going to want to keep a real close eye on. James O'Keefe says this week, a CNN insider will blow the whistle and through Project Veritas will release dozens of recordings made of officials at the highest levels of CNN, revealing a political agenda, bias and misconduct hidden from public view. He says this series of tapes, which we think will be the biggest story of the year for Project Veritas, blends two extraordinary series of events, a brave insider secretly recording at work and a hard-hitting piece of hidden camera muckraking into one of the most into one of the supposed most trusted names in news. He says a major aspect of this story is the heroic actions of an insider. By far the most asked question and most important is what can I do? And he says there's a new genre of answer. You can wear a hidden camera and blow the whistle on your employer through Project Veritas. This new movement, which we are calling Be Brave, Do Something, is enabling citizens to become catalysts for reform. It is the modern incarnation of what Jack Anderson once described as the sirens of Greek mythology, who by their seductive singing enticed unknowing wayfarers to abandon the cramped boredom of safe passage for a hazardous try at strange excitements and gratifications. Now, if Project Veritas is the siren, the Wayfarers this year have included two Google employees, a Facebook subcontractor, and a Pinterest engineer who gave up their salaries and careers for the public's right to know. And he says, we've had the privilege to entice these angels, knowing full well an army of grateful citizens are behind them. Project Veritas supporters have their backs no matter what, as long as they stand up for what is true and important for the public to know. Zach Voris, who leaked us the algorithmic unfairness document inside Google, said this was an act of atonement, an attempt to make my conscience clear. Greg Coppola, who lost his job inside Google speaking out, said, are we just going to let the biggest tech companies decide who wins every election from now on? The Facebook insider who was fired for taking screenshots of them de-boosting videos for political reasons said, I felt the public had a right to know. Eric Cochran, the Pinterest engineer who was escorted out of the building, said, for me, there was no other option. I could go through the comforts of life, but what are we saving our ammo for? They can stop one man, but they can't stop all of us. And James O'Keefe says, and so it was destiny that the CNN wayfarer met me in the spring by a happenstance 
inspired by the actions of the others who came before him. I received a simple answer as to why. Quote, I started at CNN with a dream to work in media, but my dream had become a nightmare. And with that, a hidden camera began to record, well, everything. In our current media landscape, people are famous figures for notoriety. Celebrity is a big name. Hero is a big man. So there is a new breed of heroes, the sort that Daniel Borston spoke about in his book, The Image. In our world of big names, our true heroes tend to be anonymous. In this life of illusion and quasi-illusion, the person of solid virtues who can be admired for something more substantial than his well-knownness often proves to be the unsung hero, the teacher, the nurse, the mother, the honest cop, the hard worker at lonely, underpaid, unglamorous, unpublicized jobs. These anonymous heroes become part of the Veritas Army. And then there's the act of investigating the media itself. Critics and political marketing industry operatives will rush to condemn this series of tapes with broad platitudes of how any efforts are anti-journalist. We've heard the truth is more important than ever. Democracy dies in darkness and so forth. But behind the veneer of holier-than-thou sanctimonious attitudes are some ugly truths about the fourth estate. But they are not news gathering, and the press isn't truly free. In fact, based upon what the people in these tapes say, it's no longer even doing legitimate news gathering. The media has become an industrial system of production that manufactures consent. This is true whether it's said by Noam Chomsky, James O'Keefe, or Glenn Greenwald. Political implications aside, the media has become an organ of propaganda that is only about commercialism, clicks, ratings, power, and influence, and political advocacy. And all the while, the press evades scrutiny by appealing to rights afforded by the First Amendment while adhering to none of the accompanying duties. Wow. So now you know about this. Something to keep an eye on. By the way, I'm not telling you everything they say, everything they'll report on is absolutely true. I don't know that it is. I will trust that you and I will be able to watch this and decide for ourselves. I have a pretty clear perception that uh, CNN has its agenda in the way that it reports things, the things that it leaves out, as well as the things that it actually speaks of. But I'm very interested to hear in their own words, what this insider captured on video. And I'm sure there will be predictable, you know, dismissals. Well, you know, there was editing that was done to this. They said that about the Planned Parenthood videos as well. But, you know, I don't think there's any amount of editing that can change the plain truth that was being revealed that, yeah, we do deal in uh, baby parts. and It's very lucrative curious what this will reveal about cnn one of the most trusted voices in news formerly <laughs> timely credible thoughtful discussion this is the loving liberty radio network